Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 25 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues, and ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on the Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and the moderator of today's program. We invite those of you who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public. Information on upcoming town hall forums can be found online at eWestminster.org. It is my pleasure to introduce the third speaker in our 25th anniversary series on the arts, creativity, and the common good. Singer, composer, author, educator, and social activist, Bernice Johnson Reagan has spent over four decades sharing, chronicling, and compiling the history and cultural legacy of African Americans. Dr. Reagan was born and raised in Albany, Georgia, surrounded by the sacred music of Mount Early Baptist Church, where her father was the minister. During her college years, she found her political voice in music, singing with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's Freedom Singers, and later in the 1960s with the Harambe Singers. In 1973, she founded the internationally renowned a cappella ensemble, Sweet Honey in the Rock, a quintet that has mixed harmony, music, rhythm, and message for over 30 years. Her lifelong study of African-American music and culture culminated in the completion of a doctorate in history at Howard University in 1975. She currently holds the title of Curator Emeritus at the Smithsonian Institution, where she established its program in black American culture. Her work at the Smithsonian includes two Peabody Award-winning award projects, the three-volume record collection, Voices of the Civil Rights Movement, Black American Freedom Songs, and the national public radio series, Wade in the Water, African American Sacred Music Traditions. She contributed to the acclaimed television production, Eyes on the Prize, A History of the Civil Rights Movement, and the documentary, Africans in America. Her publications include, among others, We'll Understand It Better By and By, Pioneering African American Gospel Composers, and If You Don't Go, Don't Hinder Me, the African American Sacred Song Tradition. Of the memorable songs she has performed with Sweet Honey and the Rock, one title seems to capture the motivating force in Dr. Bernice Johnson Reagan's life and work. Everybody ought to know what freedom is. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Bernice Johnson Reagan. When I die, you can 
Cast me out into the winds of time When I die you can cast me out Into the winds of time When I die let these ashes roam Blow here, blow there I know they'll find their true home When I die This song the lyrics by Isa Maria Barnwell talk about the fact we'll be gone, returning to the source. Barnwell also has another song about being born. For each child that's born, a morning star rises and sings to the universe who we are. We are our grandmother's prayers, our grandfather's dreaming. We're the breath of our ancestors. We are the spirit of God. In a way saying, we are called into life. Loaded. And we are not an aberration and we are not illegal or illegitimate. We are here because we are needed desperately. I'm grateful for this opportunity to be in this quarter of a century journey represented by this forum and also to be charged to talk about art, creativity, and the common good. It's almost like they made up the theme just so it would fit what I am about. <laughs> I come today to talk about the space in your life between being born and dying. The moving space necessitated to accommodate experiencing life on this planet for most of us. It is a very short period of time as time goes. It is what some of us have to do our part in shaping the universe. I am not concerned that you are old and at the end of your days. It is not so important to me that you are young and think that everything is in front of you. I want to talk about every breath you take being a contribution to consciously encrypt the unending energy of the universe, and being a talker who sings, I'll weave this conversation with songs that talk. Fifty million years ago, walked a player on this planet so, Lord of all that you could see, just a little bit like me, walking in your footsteps, walking in your footsteps, walking in your footsteps, walking in your footsteps. Hey, Mr. Dinosaur, you really couldn't ask for more. You were God's favorite creature, but you didn't have a future. Hey, Mr. Brontosaurus, don't you have a message for us? You thought your rule would always last. There were no message in your past. You were built three stories high, said you would not hurt a fly. If we explode the atom bomb, would they say that we were dumb? Walking in your footsteps, walking in your footsteps. They say the meek shall inherit the earth. I like this song by police that sting now because of the way in which there is the suggestion that we as humans are not above the dinosaurs. These days, I actually feel I need to apologize to the dinosaurs for singing this song and giving, that gives them characteristics that suggest that they had hierarchical desires and goals. 
we do not have that evidence. There are those of us who straddle. We are born in and of one place and culture and are sent by our parents and elders uh, to master and achieve access and mobility for ourselves and thus our people in the larger dominant society. This sending of the young from the culture of their ancestors to gain currency in the culture of another in order to improve and advance the opportunities for children, family, and future is not solely an African-American phenomenon. It is shared by many groups within our society and other contemporary and historical societies. In some groups, it is a process of voluntary economic, cultural, and social navigation, moving from one system to another, a difficult journey, but one searched for and longed for by those who make it. They say that when the people from uh, the other hemisphere met the people from this hemisphere, nine out of 10 of the indigenous people die. The one who survived out of the 10 survived because they were adaptable. The questions that drive my offering today were not accessible to me before my decision to participate in the civil rights movement. To this day, I am grateful for the new ideas that crashed into my world in Southwest Georgia during the late 40s and 50s. It is stifling to live knowing you were wronged and having that knowing actively nurtured by your birth culture that helps you to accommodate that wrong. Then, to have the questions crack open your world and ask, why continue this pact with evil? Why support this system that is wrong with the energy of your living? What can they do to you if you say no to this distortion of yourself? What will you lose if you lose everything? So what if you die? You might not, you know. And for so many of us, that was enough. Committing to a battle that risks everything you know is transformative. Surviving battles against American racism shifted the ground I had to stand on. And from that new position, I have been able to look back and see where I had been. The world black people created for some of us to survive racism was alive, not static. Complex and successful more often than not. There was a way in which you were nurtured to spread your wings to fly, but not yet. It was life nurturing, careful, cautious, tinged with fear, and sometimes it was stifling. I shudder at the extent to which the culture of the South was closed and stagnating. Fannie Lou Hamer tells the story about going to a mass meeting and hearing James Bevel say to her that there were three times more black people in her county. This is Senator Eastland's county for the gray-haired people uh, who will remember Senator Eastland from Mississippi. Then there were white people. And if those people who were born in the United States that made them citizens were registered to vote, they could kick 
Eastland out. And she went home that night thinking she was going to get up to register to vote, and she had been waiting all of her life trying to figure out was there something she could do about how wrong Mississippi was for black people. Cultural curtains are strong and powerful. Drive in the South today. Turn on your FM or AM radio and hear the monofocal litany that drenches the airways so that there is no information that people can get other than that monofocal uh, litany. And the NPR stations have very weak signals. You can drive and get it for about, you know, three or four blocks and then it's gone. Coming out of the mass mobilization phase of the movement against racism, I decided never to change my position. I would always be a fighter for justice and therefore always be moving and learning and open to being redefined. I would work to charge the air in which I sang with more than was available to people on their local radio and television stations and often in their classrooms. What are the colors of the people living in the world today? Who are the chained and who are the changed and who has the right to say when will the blood of oppression stop running inside my veins? And who are the ones who understand? What are the colors of the people living inside my mind? I want my rights, but will I fight for the rights of someone different than I? Sometimes I don't understand the troubles in this cold, cold world. I'm looking for comfort for all that I have learned. That's a song written by my daughter, Toshi Regan. And sometimes when I hear her music, I think it's fine if I die the next day. <laughs> it was as a fighter against racism that I began to see more than white people standing on my neck. I had not been out of Georgia until I started to fight against racism. Questioning the quality of humanness as a concept took a little more time. I began to wonder about being human when I tried to absorb Stories like Somalia, where not only were they trying to starve those people to death, they started to shoot at those people who came bringing food to be sure they were not starved, uh, saved from starvation. Or Bosnia, where the military strategy was not the usual rape, pillage, and plunder. It was rape. Muslim women so that they will have non-Muslim children. And then Liberia, young people running into the village with knives and without any announcement, hacking limbs off young people their same age or younger, just to be sure you are paralyzed with fear even before there's a discussion, uh, you can say, I didn't do nothing wrong. Then I watched the floods in Mozambique. And there were several days, and there were no hel helicopters. And it was like this thing of like, wait. And I can imagine somebody in South Africa saying, 
let's get the helicopters and go to Mozambique. And somebody else said, wait. And then several days later, there were five helicopters. And then I remembered Roosevelt and the bombing of England by Germany in England pleading for help. And Roosevelt said, wait. And I'm going, what is this waiting? And then it happened again with, Kat with Katrina. And it just happened with Pakistan. We sent two helicopters and then three more. And then after a while, there were like 20. And then they called off the search because anybody who wasn't discovered was dead. And then they are still saying there are some areas that nobody has even gotten to yet. Wait even with TV and it coming into your bedroom, there is this weight and I wonder, like what? A am I a member of this species? Theoretically, if I belong to the species, there is a capacity in me to do this step back. And let me see how many of them are still left. And I wondered, what is it about words that get you into trouble? Because there's something called the Animal Humane Society. And then you look up humane, and it has all this stuff in it about compassion and uh, supportive, rescue, and then it comes from the word human. And you look up human and you're talking about refined, cultivated beings of the earth as opposed to of the gods. Then you look up homo sapiens and it's like a wise man. And I'm going, wise about what? I do not see any particular thing about being human that is in and of itself so fine and outstanding. The capacity for evil is really suspicious, almost as if we need some new words. But people who want to be the best and who assume that, you know, they may not be God, but they are in the image of God, they actually capture all of that stuff by defining everything that comes out of the word they call themselves as being of the finest superior quality. And I'm going, it's a lie in practice, but maybe potentially either it could be true, because we could choose it. It could be true if we could choose it, if we could decide it. But something has shifted the balance to the impact that the planet is not going to survive the current rhythm with which we are expressing our humanness, which is not kind and compassionate. Then if you look up nature, you find things like being born, what you're born with, uh, essential qualities, innate disposition, creative power in the material world, natural character embedded in that is if you stay with the state you're born in, you are less than. You need to actually work with your native nature material and become a cultivated human. These days, as I look at animals, 
There's a song that goes, regular, regular, rolling under, give me the good to drink water. Regular, regular, rolling under, give me the good to drink water. Never seen the like since I've been born, give me the good to drink water. Bull car kicking on the milk cow's horn, give me the good to drink water. Bull cows don't fight female cows. So what is this domestic violence thing where you're in danger in the most intimate space where some people who are scared to match up against their own kind beat you up? Is that human? We would actually call that animalistic. But the evidence is not necessarily there that if you stayed with your nature, you would be that out of balance. And as I struggle with still breathing, I actually find myself with my eyes open wider than I ever thought they would be open. And I wonder, how can you sprinkle the gulf with all of those oil things? Pulling oil out of the planet as fast as you're doing it. And then in West Virginia, how come you can cut in 10 years one million acres, the top of mountains, so you can dip out the coal faster. And what happened to those knowingnesses that used to tell us we were sisters and brothers not only of each other coming from different ordered human communities and cultures, but of the plants and the stones and the animals. Where is the combining of all of our issues so that they are in a line with a bigger picture that says, if you breathe today, is there anything in the way you move that will do something so two, three hundred years after you're gone, there will be life as evidence of your existence? coming out of slavery, black people decided to stay. And there's a spiritual that talks about Gilead being a place that does not seem to have healing. And sometimes when you are wrong, you say, let's leave, because I'm so mistreated. But in this place, through this song, it says in the same place where you're wounded, there is the possibility of being healed. If you stay and extract healing, you have to, of course, change the place. There is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in 
sin-sick soul. One more time, everybody in. There is a bar. Good harmony now. In Gilead to Sometimes I think, oh gosh, if they drop a bomb, please follow me because I don't want to be there the next morning woke and alive. But theoretically, everybody here is breathing. You will, in spite of everything that happened in the universe yesterday, <laughs> you are here. And being here, we got work to do. Sometimes, I feel discouraged and I think my work's in vain but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul what the material evidence says. Somebody says, I got a piece of paper, Bernice, you are my property. This song says, you can go inside of yourself and touch that place that is the unending, ongoing, everlasting energy in the universe. And you can, if you are not dead, get up and not be owned by the person who has material, fiscal, state-based evidence that you are property. There is a bomb. That's B-A-L-M. <laughs> I spell it now because most people hear it as B-O-M-B, which would make the whole thing a bit confusing. <laughs> then I also say B-A-L-M is like a salve for, for, for being wounded. There is a bomb in Gilead to I think in 25 years of doing the Westminster Town Hall Forum, we've never had the audience join in singing with the speaker. It's a wonderful thing. Thank you, Bernice Johnson Reagan. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Church and the moderator of the forum. Our guest is Bernice Johnson Reagan. 
While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I would like to thank the sponsors of today's forum, the General Mills, Baker, and Hognander Foundations. We also want to thank all the organizations and individuals who support our mission to promote public discourse on the critical issues of our day. We invite you to join the Westminster Town Hall Forum for the next presentation in our series, The Arts, Creativity, and the Common Good, on Thursday, November 10th, when writer Salman Rushdie will be our guest. Next Thursday, October 27th, we welcome Dr. Peter Wallenstein from Sweden for a special presentation on peacemaking, lessons from Dag Hammarskjöld. Dr. Regan, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. Bernice, I've always been impressed with your inclusiveness in your performances, that is, interpreted services for the deaf and hard of hearing people. Thank you. How do you propose to engage young people in the current events of the day through arts such as music, writing, etc.? Young people. Um, treat them as if they are a, an extension of who you are. Ella Baker says, uh, to me, young people come first. Uh, the older I get, the better I know that the secret of going on is teaching young people. And I found out you really don't know what you know until you try to tell somebody else. And that's the process of not leaving it in your wallet and your pocketbook and taking it to bed with you. It is almost as if the only important record of your living is that you actually understand your life being beyond the actual living you do and the connection with that going onness is your relationship with someone who is at least uh, one or two generations younger than you are. And to do it, you actually have to have in your relationship somebody who can sit you down, smart enough to take over from you before you are ready to retire. A uh, question about what inspired your prophetic voice. You clearly are a prophetic voice. What was the spark that ignited the potential of the civil rights movement in you and others so many years ago? And what spark do you think might ignite a new movement to heal community and earth? Uh, hopefully it is going on, and I don't deal with that prophetic voice thing. I'm a historian. I really operate much more out of evidence. In, in evaluating evidence. Uh, but my activism is based on a very self-centered need. And it was racism. And I still remember the woman who asked me when I was singing with the Freedom Singers, uh, don't you care about strontium-90 being in breast milk? I told her no. I needed to get this white man off my head. Or someone else who said, do you believe all people who should be, should be free? Yes. Should China be a member of the United Nations? No. Why? They're communists. I was a freedom fighter then. And that's what I talk about, the wall the wall of culture, and you can actually be beginning to open your eyes and finding strength to fight for yourself, and your foot is on somebody else. If you stay in activism, you can't not look to see who you're holding down. And that is very important work. It really then puts you in an ongoing movement for change. 
Why does it take so long for a black man or black woman to understand they are experiencing racism? I don't think it takes long. <laughs> All right, we'll go on to the next question then. Could you comment on the role of music and song in the civil rights movement and is there anything comparable in our history to the connection between music and the social movement or perhaps even today? Uh, one of the things about the civil rights movement is that the culture is shaped by a singing people and it's a singing people who at the time we were active believed they could outsing any record they liked, you know, so you come home, you put on Aretha Franklin, you can't hear her because you're out singing her. <laughs> when you're in that culture, and the music is changing, the music is changing, so that message is not as strong. But when you're in that culture, that means you're not only in a singing culture, but you're in a collective congregational culture. And I grew up in a culture where you never actually started anything without a song. If you're not born into that culture, it does not mean you are pitiful. <laughs> it just means that's not where you were born. And so there are other places where you will find that kind of singing. But there are other movements where the singing is much more like the ballad tradition where you have the, the long recorded songs that, that are like historical documents. It really is very different. In other places, you don't get the singing without the dancing. So the, the artist and the importance of art in communities and in a country like ours where we actually have so many cultures and so many people and so many different ways to get at that part of us that is touched by being involved somehow in art is uh, it's a, it's a, it's a sad thing to see what's happening to it in schools. For myself, I don't want to run with human beings who've not been awakened in that way. It's a dangerous neighborhood. And then you just rip it right out of the educational system. So I think there, there are examples, but one of the things I find is I can go almost any place, and no matter where people are born or how their relationship with music is formed, they somehow feel that they have to help me. And even though they may not really be overly conscious or familiar, they actually take that leap. And as far as I experience, I'm in Southwest Georgia singing Bomb and Gilead. And that's all right. Does music allow us to say things about justice which are harder or less acceptable to express in normal dialogue? No. Music does what it does, and I tell people, check your music and check what it says. And, you know, you can say things in a song, and the song will come off the radio and never get on because of what it says. And so, and then you can have music that uh, says very little, uh, about being grounded in everyday experiences of people. Uh, but it is not easier. I remember the first time we sang Every Woman, uh, which talked about women partners and partnerships in a black audience in Washington, D.C. I knew they were going to kill us. I remember the first time we talked about AIDS and sang a song about AIDS and in the introduction actually talked about the fact that when people have sex they don't talk and how dangerous that was. 
and that this virus basically just like fluid. It was not discriminating. And it was in a black church. It's not easier to do that, which is why a lot of people don't operate in cross-category audiences because there's no chance that everybody's sitting there going to like what you say. Have you ever felt an affinity with another culture and their music due to the fact of similar situations or experiences expressed in that music? Yes. Describe some of those. <laughs> uh, I think I heard in the music, I heard a group called the Penny Whistlers. And they were uh, descended from Eastern European Jews. And they sang a cappella. And I could not figure out why I was pulled so hard. And uh, it had me looking at Eastern European Slavic culture and discovering how powerful the singing was and how blended and integrated it was in the lives of the people. Uh, Irish ballad singers uh, were, is another place where I found music that was a very, very powerful experience. And the African music that I sing the easiest is the South African music. Is a question that asks how you would evoke the song of foster children or traumatized children or at-risk children who need to find their individual voices apart from their life circumstances. <laughs> there are people who actually have an issue and they want me to write the song for it and I <laughs> usually tell them they need to write a song themselves. Send it to me when you get it together. <laughs> <laughs> A <laughs> couple of questions about Sweet Honey and the Rock. What was the inspiration for starting Sweet Honey and the Rock? Uh, I had a workshop in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was a theater, and so it was an arts environment. And I was the vocal director, and I trained the voices. And uh, I trained them with the material I knew. And it was the first time in my life I actually had taught some of the forms. And at some point, they said, this ought to go on stage. And I said, what? Because, you know, if it was a train whistle and we needed a train whistle, I just actually structured the sound of a train, all dissonant harmonies. And they said, the songs you're singing, well, the songs cross genres, uh, music genres. They cross subject categories. Uh, and I knew that there was no music business uh, affinity to what, what that was, but after the second or third time I called the first rehearsal. So Sweet Honey is not my idea. I did not have a vision for it, but I actually did find, found the group and structured the process as a artistic creative force and uh, as a business, so that even when I finished singing in 2004, there's still a sweet honey. They chose to continue. And I think that um, one of the things I kept in my mind was that Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tugman in the 19th century were also singers and songwriters. So I felt like we had some models for who we could be in another century, at least in terms of what we did with our music. Several of our audience members have asked you to sing another song, and this is our closing question. Can you sing In the Upper Room, please? No, I can't sing In the Upper Room. It means, it means you've never heard Sweet Honey singing. I am in that song doing, there's a background and I am the middle harmony in the background. <laughs> the lead is a first soprano, and Isa, who's the bass. 
So I'm so sorry. I can't sing in the upper room, but it's okay with me. <laughs> <laughs> what song can you sing to close our time here? <laughs> I don't know how my mother walked a trouble down. I don't know how my father stood his ground. I don't know how my people survived slavery. I do remember that's why I believe. I don't know how the rivers overflow their banks and I don't know why the snow falls and covers the ground. I don't know how the hurricane sweeps through the land every now and then. Standing in a rainstorm, I believe. I don't know why the angels woke me up this morning soon. And I don't know why the blood still runs through my veins. I don't know how I rate to run another day. I am here still running, I believe. My God calls to me in the morning dew. The power of the universe knows my name gave me a song to sing and sent me on my way i raised my voice for justice i believe thank you thank you bernice johnson Reagan. Thank you, Bernice Johnson-Reagan. Be sure to join us again next Thursday, October 27th, for Dr. Peter Wallenstein, and on Thursday, November 10th, for writer Salman Rushdie. Thank you for being here. <laughs>